Our series on Job has been called Alone. There are four installments to it. If you were here the first week, it was Alone Singled Out. Because when you go through hard times or when your life turns dark, you can feel like the target's been painted on you. You've been singled out of a crowd to go through difficult times. And then last week, we saw that Job experienced a different kind of aloneness, abandonment. And his, he, his wife said, just give up on God and die, and basically told him to commit suicide. But the worst part of his abandonment was he couldn't find God, and God seemed to be silent during that time. And many of you know what it's like to have gone through those first two stages of aloneness, uh, feeling targeted or feeling abandoned. And then next week, I can't wait for that because it's a wonderful kind of alone because it's called Alone Invited In. This is a time, a time where Job gets to be alone with God and learn about why things have happened the way they've done. And that'll be a really fun message as we talk about that next week. But now we're in week three, and it's called Alone Misunderstood because Job is going to have three friends, maybe four, come to see him. And instead of comforting Job, they are going to judge him. I don't know if you've ever been judged or not, but if you have, you know it's a very painful experience. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about what judging is and how it happens and how not to judge other people and who not to let into your life when life turns dark. Let me start by just asking you a technical question tonight as we get started, and that is, are you a judgmental person, or are there people in your life who are judgmental? Because it's important to think about, Jesus said in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, do not judge, and you will not be judged, or do not judge, or you too will be judged. So Jesus is saying, if you judge, then God will judge you, and he goes on to say in the most chilling aspect of his statement, that the measuring stick that we use when we judge other people will be the measuring stick that God uses with us. I had lunch with a friend who was in the last service. I saw him sitting here, and I remember what I told him at lunch Friday. I said, my ultimate fear is when I get to heaven, and I'm judged, I, that God is just going to play my sermons and, and say, okay, Mark, you preached this. Did you live by it? Because I've discovered it's a lot easier to communicate what you should do than actually live that. Have you discovered that? And so the Bible is saying, be careful about judging people because the standard that you use to judge people will be the standard that, that, that God uses with you. And it could be that you're saying, okay, Mark, I'm batting 1,000 right now. I got an A-plus going here because I am not a judgmental person. I don't judge anybody. Well, I think it's a little bit complicated today. And I think it's important for us to peel the onion and to just really make sure we know what we're talking about when we say that we don't judge or we do judge. There's some confusion. So let me, let me just throw a few thoughts at you to think about to see whether or not you're judgmental. Let me ask you a question. If you see somebody steal, like if, you, if you're driving home tonight and you see somebody walk into QT with a, a gun and point at the, the clerk behind the counter and take the money, could I ask you a question? Is that wrong? Could you, could you say, that's wrong? You shouldn't do that. That's wrong. Um, if a child disrespects his or her parents, let's just say you're at the mall and, and, and many of us have seen this, this kind of thing, and a, and a 10-year-old just goes ballistic on her mom using a profanity-laced tirade, and you see this child totally dis disrespect her parents or his parents in a public place, is that wrong? Would you, would you look at that and say, that's wrong? If you see somebody hurt someone else, would you say that's wrong. If your best friend's husband visits prostitutes and gives her an STD, could you say, would you say, that's wrong? 
If someone gets behind the wheel of an automobile tonight on the ice with two times the legal uh, alcohol amount in his bloodstream and he's on Kellogg and he crosses the medium because he's drunk and he wipes out a whole family of, uh, of innocent Kansans, Wichitans, um, would that be wrong? Could you, could you look at that and say, it's not just unfortunate and it's not just a crime, it's wrong. Does that make you judgmental? If you said those things about all these situations, because I'm just guessing every sane person here tonight, every sane person here looked at all those scenarios and said, that's wrong. I mean, we would say that. We would say, that's wrong. Should you feel bad for being judgmental in those situations? And the answer to the question is no, you shouldn't feel bad about judging those things because the truth be told, you didn't judge. Long before you were ever born, long before the meter of your memory started running, there was a God who decided those things are wrong. And so consequently, it's not that you sat in a place of authority and you determined that giving somebody an STD is wrong or that killing someone in an alcoholic stupor is wrong or beating somebody up. You didn't decide that's wrong. God decided it's wrong. So when you say it's wrong, it's not your judgment. You're just articulating what God has already decided. Well, the truth is, in America tonight, we're conflicted about God because some of the things that God says are wrong, we agree with. Some of the things God says are wrong, we don't agree with. And so when, when we agree with God, it's like, well, yeah, I have, I, I'm right to say that that's wrong. But on the other case, why well, I, I don't judge. And, and I just think we really owe it to ourselves to have some intellectual connection there and, and say, what, what, is it, what does it mean to be judgmental? Because, see, I really believe that that's one of the things that our culture at large feels about itself. You know, i got to be honest with you. When I'm a baby boomer. When I look at my grandparents' generation, honestly, I think I'm grossly, in, I, I think my generation is grossly inferior to my grandfather's generation. I think my generation is grossly inferior to my mom and dad's generation. But you see, the one thing that I think my generation told itself is that, well, the one way we're better is that we're more tolerant we're not judgmental. We don't have anything else much to go on. Our lives are pretty well wrecks, but at least that's some sort of morality that we hold on to. I'm not judgmental. Well, the truth of the matter is, and this is what I, I, it troubles me today, and, and I'll get off this pretty quickly, but I think we're one of the most judgmental cultures that's ever lived. I'm talking about our generation and the generations behind us, because you I mean, all you got to do is look at Facebook. All you got to do is look at an opinion thread after an, after an article in a newspaper. I mean, look at the stuff people say. A lot of those opinions that we throw around so loosely, we need to wake up and realize that's judging. Because here's what judging is. You know, see this so that we won't judge other people and so that other people won't judge us. Judging is indicting without basis and sentencing without authority. Can I say that one more time? Judging is indicting without basis and sentencing without authority. Now, in all those cases, there would be basis for us to say it's wrong. But if you take that same kid who's dissing his mom, and you say to that kid, hey, you're a loser, and you're always going to be a loser, and you'll never amount to anything. Uh-oh, now you've gone from having a basis to say that that behavior is wrong, and you have sentenced that kid without the authority to sentence that kid. How do you know that that kid will always be a train wreck? Maybe somebody will come along in his life, and she'll figure it out, and he'll figure it out, and go on to be a very respectful adult. See, there's a difference there. Judging is indicting without basis and sentencing without authority, just so that we'll know what it is. Actually, the word that we use for it the most is be misunderstood. 
we do something and somebody accuses us of doing something we would never do. Have you ever had that happen to you? Isn't it strange? And I think that's a thing of Satan. I think it's one of his biggest, and this is for a different sermon, but I think one of the biggest discouragement tactics of Satan is to accuse you of doing something you would never do, to accuse you of thinking something you would never think, to accuse you of intending something you would never intend. Isn't that strange? I mean, if you think about some of the worst things that have happened to you when people have judged you, isn't it true that people have judged you and accused you of stuff that you would never do? Are you like me? You would like write out a list of things that you do wrong and say, here, if you want to judge me for something, I'll sign my name to these. But judging is accusing someone of doing, thinking, intending something that they wouldn't do, and then sentencing them to the dumb cell or the loser box or rejection prison. Well, if you're, if you're having a good day and somebody judges you, chances are you can pretty well sell on with that and just let it kind of roll off of you. But the hardest time to be judged is like our guy Job was being judged, and that's to be judged when you're going through a crisis. I mean, it's one thing to be judged when you've got equilibrium. It's something else when you're hanging by your fingernails and you're just trying to survive and then somebody comes along and rips you at that moment. It's really hard to go through that. So we want to talk about that tonight. We'll be through in just a few moments, but we want to talk seriously about what it means to be judged and to keep from judging other people who are going through difficult times. You know Job's story. If you were here for the first two weeks, it's a peculiar story, and I'm not going to try to explain it to you because I don't understand it myself. All I know is that Satan, the created angel that God made from the very beginning, still had access to God in the Old Testament days at least. And God was reviewing all the angels, and Lucifer, Satan, came among them. And it seems that his primary thing before God is to accuse people to God. Here's the thing. Satan has no ability to damage you without getting God's permission. So that's the big thing that he does. He comes to God and tries to make a compelling case. He has a right to do you harm for the things that you and I do wrong. So God sees him coming and preempts him. And God said, have you seen my servant Job? My guy Job, he's the best guy in the world. Job was also the richest guy in his area. And he said, my servant Job is great. And and Satan said to him, hey, nobody serves you for nothing. That's a great question. Will somebody serve God just because God deserves to be served? Or do we only serve God for what we get out of him? Oh, that's for another sermon. But anyway, Satan said, the only reason why Job is, does what you want him to do is you put a fence around him, and you give him all these toys, and you won't let me touch him. He said, I'll tell you what, God, you let me take his stuff. You let me take his stuff, and you'll find out that Job is just like everybody else. And God said, all right, you can take his stuff. Fence comes down, but you can't touch his body. And you guys, if you were here the first week, you know that in just a matter of minutes, Job was bankrupt. The richest man probably in the world lost everything he had, but that was just for starters because his 10 kids were in a house and a tornado hit it and killed all 10 of his kids. So within a matter of minutes, he hears that he's bankrupt and all 10 of his kids are dead. But instead of doing what Satan said he would do, Job said, look, I came in naked to this world and I'm leaving naked and and everything I got came from God. God gave, God took, blessed. I'm going to find a way to say something good about God. And so Satan comes back to God, and God said, hey, I told you so. And Satan said, hey, you know, that's just the way it is. You, you, touch, you let me touch his body, and I promise you he will curse you. And God said, all right, you can touch his body, but you can't take his life. And from that moment on, Job, and you can imagine, Satan is pulling out all the stops. I mean, after all, Satan's got to deal with God here, and so he's going to do everything he can to break Job. 
So his, his kids are gone, his wealth is gone, his wife basically is just can't handle the grief. She basically says, Job, why don't you commit suicide? And now Job's got this disease with lesions from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. And the only relief he can get is to scrape the lesions. And, and, and it's just awful. I mean, he's losing weight. He's skin and bones. He's setting out in an ash heap. He smells bad. His breath is bad. People are making fun of him. He's just dying out there on ash heap. And he doesn't know why. Now, Job has friends. And we know that there are three, maybe there are four, but we want to read about his friends because the Bible says his friends, well, let's just read this. Job's three friends heard about all the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their clothes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. And no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering is. Now, we're going to get really upset with these guys before we're finished tonight. But let's just give them credit for starting well. Because they do several things that I really like. First of all, they have good intentions. I mean, notice they met by agreement. They decided to go see Job. They wanted to sympathize with him, and they wanted to comfort him. Wonderful intentions. And then they grieved with him. I think that showed that they love. See, grief is the dark side of love. You can't love, you can't grieve without loving. So when they grieved with Job, I think they I think they really did love him. And then they sat with him. That's good. And then they said nothing. How many times do you want to comfort somebody and you don't know what to say? Well, it's a good time just to say nothing. And so for seven days and seven nights they just sat there and said absolutely nothing. Now I get furious with them because in a few moments we're going to see that all this fall apart. But let's just start out and give these guys some credit that they had good intentions. And isn't it true, we can have a situation that starts off with good intentions and our human nature will override it and then we'll screw it up. Let me ask you a question. How many of you guys decided to have the perfect vacation in Orlando, Disney World? It's going to be perfect. It's dream vacation and it turns into a nightmare. Been there? How many of you have had the, you're going to have the perfect date with your wife or your husband or your you know, the most significant person in your life and you're going to have candles and you're going to go to, the, you're going to this elegant restaurant. It's going to be the perfect, and then it just ends in a fight. Anybody have that happen? It's just life. We can start off with good intentions, and then it can, it can, it can fall apart. And that's what happened to Job's friends. Now, guys, I want to just tell you one more thing before we get into this tonight. As I said to you before in the first service, the first sermon, I, I don't like to just sit and read Job because if I were the Holy Spirit, I would have had this book be completely different. The first two chapters of the 42 chapters of Job tell about how Job's life fell apart. Last eight verses of chapter 42 tell about how God put his life back together. There are about three or four chapters that we'll look at next week where God comes and asks Job all these questions. Now, for me, if I'm writing the book of Job, that's all I put in there. There are 35 chapters in the middle I would have just made as a footnote because it's Job and his friends going back and forth with each other. And the reason I'd have made it a footnote is Job doesn't know why it's happening and they don't know why it's happening, but they're talking to each other anyway. And if I'd just been God, I'd have just said, okay, Job doesn't know what's happening. His friends don't know what's happening. 35 chapters later, here we are. But the Holy Spirit is not me, thankfully. And I, I really wonder why that is. Why does God make 35 chapters out of Job talking to his friends? Well, I don't know. 
Maybe one of the reasons, and I, I, when I got ready to preach, this is about the third or fourth time I've done a series on Job, and each time I, I preach on this book, I realize that there's a mystery to suffering. You know, I don't think anybody else can tell anybody else the template for suffering. I mean, there's some lessons we can learn, and we'll extract them, and we'll go away with them. But at the end of the day, your situation is going to be different from mine, and mine's going to be different from yours. The key, to, the key to suffering is to experience God and to learn the lessons that God wants us to learn and draw closer to Him. So perhaps the reason why we have these chapters is God just wants us to feel what it's like for a person to go through the grief of being misunderstood. Well, let's, let's get into what happens. If you want to understand the 35 chapters with Job talking to his friends, Here's what happens. First of all, the silence is broken with Job proclaiming his innocence. Let's put this in 2014 terms. They sit there for seven days and they don't talk and they watch this poor man shriveled to nothing. They, watch, they just can't believe what's happened to him. And Job finally opens his mouth and says, fellas, I don't know what happened here. I don't have a clue. I was trying to serve God. I was trying to be honest, trying to be a good husband, trying to be a good dad, trying to follow God, trying to be good to people. And out of nowhere, all this happened to me. Now, his friends react to that. His friends have this belief that was very prevalent back then. They believe that if you did good things, good things will happen. If you do bad things, bad things will happen. By the way, that's still prevalent in 2014, isn't it? So they're convinced of that. And so they're looking at this shell of a human being, and they're thinking, my goodness, he must have done something really wrong for God to do this to him. So they want to help him. They... They want to bring, they want to coax Job to a place of confession. They want to bring him to catharsis. They want to bring him to a place where Job will own up to whatever it is he's done wrong. So as Job has poured out his innocence to them, they say to him, Job, listen, there's no sense in trying to do that with us. We know you've done something wrong. Tell us what you've done. God is good. God is merciful. God will forgive you. Well, you and I know the backstory. And I know that Job didn't do anything wrong. He really is innocent. So what do you think Job's going to do? He's going to turn up the volume, and he's going to protest his innocence more strongly. And they're going to turn up the volume and get mad because Job has refused to receive their timely help. And so they're going to turn up the volume and say other things to Job that are a lot more painful. And then Job is going to say even more ardently that he's innocent, and they're going to say no. And then at that point, they pour out invective on him like you won't believe. You can surely understand that I can't tell you 35 chapters of dialogue. Well, let me read you. Would you like to just hear a list of 17 things Job's friends say to him? Here we go. Let's, let's go through these real quickly. You gave advice to others. Now, you can't handle it when it happens to you. You can't handle the truth. Number two, if you would return to God, he would help you. If you would get rid of your money, God would help you. That's really funny. When Job's broke at this point. You're nothing but a windbag, number four. Number five, this is the one that if, I, if time travel was possible, I would go back and punch these guys out. <laughs> Listen to this. See if, I'm, see if you wouldn't join me with some brass knuckles. Listen, they said, your kids did wrong or this wouldn't have happened. It was well-deserved. They said to him, your 10 kids deserve to be killed. And they said, number six, you're mocking God. Number seven, you're a corrupt man with thirst for wickedness. Number eight, because of your wickedness, you will have no children or grandchildren. Number nine, when people see your ruins, they will say, this is the house of a wicked man who rejected God. 
Number 10, it's because you're a hypocrite, pious, there's no end to your sins. Number 11, you must have mistreated widows and orphans. Number 12, you thought the world belonged to you because you were rich. Number 13, there's never been anyone like you with such a thirst for irreverent talk. You chose evil people for companions. You want God to tailor his justice for your demands. Number 16, and I save this in quotes from the New Living Translation, you deserve the maximum penalty. And number 17, God has sent this suffering to keep you from a life of evil with friends like that. Who needs enemies? Well, guys, very clearly, you, I started the talk by saying judging is accusing somebody without basis and sentencing without authority. And they've done both. I mean, if I remember right, they accused him of being a windbag. They accused his kids of doing wrong. They accused him of mistreating widows and orphans, accused him of mocking God, being corrupt, being a hypocrite, choosing evil companions. They accused him of being wicked. And they sentenced him. They said, your kids deserve to die. They said, people will see your life and say, this is a man who rejected God. They said, you deserve the maximum penalty. They said, God has sent this suffering to you. See? They accused him without basis, and they sentenced him without authority. Were any of those things true? I mean, we've got Job 1. We know what God thought. I mean, who cares what these clowns thought? I mean, the question is, what did God think? God said there was a man named Job. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. God says to Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. Think about these awful things these guys said about Job. And God says he's the best man in the world. They have indicted him without evidence. They have sentenced him without authority. How did they go so wrong? How did guys who grieved over Job's situation, who really loved him, how did they get it so wrong? You ready for this? Because we all need this. They took on a job they were never meant to have. They, they, felt, they felt the pressure to explain it to Job. They felt the pressure to figure it out for him. Like you heard Jesse sing a moment ago, they, they connected the dots, but unfortunately, as you and I know, we know Job 1, there are a lot of dots that were missing, and so when they connected the dots, they got the picture all wrong. I've done that. And by the way, when we realize we've done that, saying, well, I didn't have all the information, that doesn't get us off the hook. You want to hear what, and I'm going to jump out of this and give you some practical lessons, and we're going to go home. You want to hear what eventually happened to Job's friends? Did they get punished? Did God let them go? This is so interesting. We're going to jump to the end of the book now, and we're going to see what happened to Job's friends. God talked to Job, and then after he talked to Job, he talked to Eliphaz, the Temanite or termite or whatever he was, and God said to him, <laughs> God said, I've had, this is from the message, I've had it with you and your two friends. I'm fed up. You haven't been honest either with me or about me, not the way Job has. So here's what you must do. Take seven bulls, seven rams, go to my friend Job, sacrifice a burnt offering on your behalf. My friend Job, my friend Job, my buddy Job, God said, will pray for you and I will accept his prayer. He will ask me not to treat you as you deserve for talking nonsense about me and for not being honest with me as he has. Can you imagine all four of these guys having to go hat in hand said, Job, would you pray for us, please? <laughs> and if he hadn't, they'd have had a worse situation than Job had. By the way, you know what? God is so smart. It was healthy for Job to pray for people who had judged him. And we'll save that for next week. 
I want to ask a question, and we're going to end this tonight. But for the next few moments, what we're going to, for all of you who are going to go through a crisis, which is all of us, or for those of you who are in a crisis, it's really important tonight. When your life goes dark, who do you let in? I'm going to be more frank tonight than maybe you've ever heard a minister be. I really believe that there's a feeling out there that if you're a Christian, you just have to let anybody into your life. That isn't true. You know what? If you're going through a lot of grief right now, it's everything you can do to go through the grief and to please God. You just don't let, you don't have to let everybody into your life. I mean, frankly, some people are just nosy. <laughs> you ever met anybody It's like you're going through a hard time and they, you're like, oh, I really care a lot about it. Would you tell me about what you're going through? And so you tell them what you're going through and then they're burning up the phone or Facebook or something or tweeting out your crisis to everybody else. I don't care. It's just nosy. Some people just have to know. Some people, and you got to be really old to recognize this term, so I realize it's all of you who are younger, you have to find some kind of modern equivalent for it. But some people feel like God has made them the permanent hall monitor. When I was in school, you know, the teachers would like assign a kid to like watch the hall for people who didn't have a pass. And then I've met people like that in life that feel like God has just made them the permanent hall monitor to make sure everybody else does right. You don't want to let that person into your life. And frankly, some people are just nut jobs. You don't have to let them in. Okay, Job's going to give us a tutorial who to keep out of our lives because he's going to say things to his friends. And, and what we're going to see is what he says about them is that they're unhelpful. And we're going to learn this real quickly about several people that you want to, don't want to let in your life. Number one, you don't want to let people into your life who think they know everything. I mean, there are just people who know the answer to every question. Honestly, there's going to be a, I mean, what would have been the smartest thing for Job's friends to have said to him? Job, we don't know why this has happened to you, but we love you. We're here for you, but we just don't know either. I mean, you don't want to let somebody into your life who knows the answer to everything. Job says in Job 12 too, you people really know everything, don't you? And when you die, wisdom will die with you. I usually don't like sarcasm, but this may be Holy Spirit inspired sarcasm. <laughs> Number two. Second people that you don't want to let into your life in a crisis is people who haven't bought a ticket to your crisis. Or maybe another way of saying is it people who don't have any skin in the game. This has got to be one of my five favorite quotes in the book of Job. In Job 12, 5, he said, people who are at ease mock those who are in trouble. They give a push to people who are stumbling. In other words, people who, are, who have life good, they make light of other people's suffering. You know why? They can leave. And they can go back to life as normal. Let me ask you a question. If you've ever gone through a hard time in your life, who's been the most valuable person in your life? Either somebody who was part of your crisis or somebody who's been through a similar crisis. They got skin in the game. Number three, the third person you don't want to let into your crisis is people who talk a lot and don't say anything. There are people like that. Their mouth just runs all the time. But at the end of the day, they didn't really help. Job says to his friends, I know a few things myself. You're no better than I am. Who doesn't know these things you've been saying? He's saying, these are all platitudes. Job 16.2, I've heard all this before. What miserable comforters you are. Won't you ever stop blowing hot air? What makes you keep on talking? And number four, and I'm going to really, this is really important right here. And this will help you understand why a lot of people judge you when you're going through hard times. Number four, insecure people. Let me read this text to you. Job says, how long will you torture me? 
you think you're better than I am, using my humiliation as evidence of my sin. That's a very pregnant term or expression right there. Very important. Here's the thing. A lot of people will want to think you've done something to deserve your crisis because they want to feel like they're secure and they won't have the crisis that you've had because they haven't done what you've done. So consequently, they have to invent something that you've done wrong so they can mop their brow and say, I guess I'm secure. And so that's what Job's friends were. I mean, I, don't th- I think they saw this poor, pathetic spectacle, and I am convinced they wanted to believe this can't happen to me because I haven't done what Job's done. That's insecurity. This is really important. When you're hanging by your fingernails in life, and it's all you can do to get out of bed in the morning, and all you can do to believe that you're going to have it tomorrow, who do you let into your life? This is really important. Number one, somebody who will let you be yourself. Somebody who will let you talk crazy and not think you are crazy. That's true. I don't have time to tell this story, but and you've heard me tell it before. I remember in 2004, we were going through transition. We were actually just beginning four years of it. And it was unpopular. And if you're the senior pastor, you're the face for every controversial decision. Lord knows I was then. And, uh, you know, I've, I've told you before, we were averaging about 1,200 in attendance, and we lost probably 800 of those people over the next four years. And it was tough, really tough. And in the worst part of, of 2004, when it was just at its most brutal, I used to do something back then. You know, I still believed I could know everybody in the church. Now it was 7,000 on a weekend. I, I know I can't, but I had still held on to hoping that I could know everybody. And we used to do something called Dinner for 12. And so it would be, if people wanted to have dinner with me, they could sign up for it. So every week I was going to have Dinner for 12, and it would be on Wednesday evening before our Wednesday evening service. And um, so I'd go back there, and, and I enjoyed it. Except during the transition, it was really tough because everybody was asking me, would you explain? Have you ever been through hard times and people would just say, would you explain it? And you just tell the same story so many times. It's so painful. And frankly, it was a lot I couldn't understand myself. So what had been a very pleasant thing, it was always, I would go back there and somebody's going to say, would you explain what's going on? And I remember doing the very worst part of it. I had dinner for 12 on my birthday. It was in August and it's my birthday. And I remember leaving my office exhausted already and going back to dinner for 12 that night at 6 o'clock thinking, I'm going to have to explain this on my birthday. And I got back there to dinner for 12, and my staff had done something. Instead of 12 people sitting there, there were only four and Mary Alice. There were two couples here, Paul and Alice Clark. Paul's with the Lord now. And Rich and Shiloh Jewinlaw, four of my closest friends in the world. But here's what my staff knew. As exhausted as I was, there were four people who would just let me be Mark. For a few moments, I didn't have to be pastor of a megachurch that was going through a great transition. For just a few moments, I was with some of the closest friends I had, and it was okay to be me. I cannot tell you how I felt that moment when I looked in the room and I thought, I can be myself. When you're going through a hard time, you need to be around people who will let you be yourself. And like I say, who will let you talk crazy and not think you are. The second kind of person you need, and this is really important, if you've ever suffered the death of a loved one, you know this one's really important. You need somebody who will remind you of good times. 
One of the greatest things I think we can do for people that we're close to, that we love, when they're going through a crisis, is remind them of good times. Why is that important to us? Because when you're going through the worst part of a crisis, you're not sure who you are anymore. Let me ask you a question. I'm just, and some of you have never been there before, and you won't have any idea what I'm talking about. But if you've been to the crisis where you're hanging by your fingernails, you can get to the place where you don't know who you are anymore, and you don't know if you have a future. One of the sweetest things that can happen to you is to have somebody come in who will sit down and talk about fun times in the past where you can remember who you were before the crisis hit, and you begin to think for a few moments, maybe I do have a future. Like I said, if you've ever had the loss of a loved one, some of you will know what this experience is like because you can be sitting in the viewing room of a funeral home and the casket of a person you love very much is right there in the room with you. And a friend will come in and begin to tell stories. And before you realize it, you're sitting there in that viewing room laughing about something. Why? Because somebody has reminded you that you're, you're not just that experience you're having that moment, that there was life before. And because of the promises of God, there will be life after. I preached on the book of Job six, seven years ago in a series called Silence, and I gave those two. In 2010, I went through a difficult time. You've heard me tell about it in intensive care in a couple of the series. I just got exhausted and was having some health problems, and at that point, just all my anxieties just, just shut me down. And at that point, I began to worry about, you know, was God pleased with, with me? And I just, it's like I couldn't find, I was like Job, I couldn't find God. And it's like it came out of nowhere. There was no, no, no catalyst for it. Just all of a sudden, I'd shut down. And, and I learned this third one during that. When, when you're hanging by your fingernails in a crisis, you need to let somebody into your life whose love will remind you of God's love when you can't find God and you can't feel God's love. It's very important to have somebody in your life who will remind you of God's love. I got to tell you this, during that time when I was so exhausted and I couldn't think straight, the most helpful thing was to have people in my life. Who, I used to, I would ask Mariels, why is everybody being so good to me? But the person I remember the most, we were in Atlanta, and my cousin Anita Renfro is like sister to me. She's a Christian entertainer and Christian comedian. She was in Seattle. She was flying back home to Atlanta. I didn't think I was going to get to see her because our flight to Wichita was out. But she landed just with a few minutes to spare, and she texted Mary Alice, and she said, I want to see Mark. And so I got on the MARTA and rode down to the baggage claim in the Atlanta airport. And my cousin Anita, who is a comedian, many of you have heard her routines or seen her on Good Morning America or whatever, my cousin Anita met me in the baggage claim. And I remember like yesterday, she held my head in her hands and just cradled my head and with no embarrassment, sobbed openly in that baggage claim. And she said, oh, Mark, and she held my head. She said, that brilliant braid that thinks of so many ways to explain God's word is not working well today. I remember that moment like it was a moment ago. Why? Because when I couldn't find God, there was somebody who loved me, and her love reminded me of God's love for me at a moment when I couldn't find God. And you'll need that person. Because like Job, there will be a time in your life where you can't find God. I really have more to say, and I'm going to have to quit because I'm in overtime. But can I just take a moment to flip this? How do we handle it when the roles are reversed and we're Job's friends coming to see Job? 
How do you keep from hurting somebody by saying the wrong thing when you don't know what to say? You don't have to say these two expressions, but just let these two expressions guide your whole conduct. When you love somebody who's hurting, there's really only two things they need to hear from you. Number one is, I'm here, and I care. You don't have to figure it out for them. You don't have to connect the dots for them. If they have a loved one, you can't bring that loved one back to life. You can't heal them from cancer. You can't make their problems go away. But you can say, I'm here, and I care. I know I'm in overtime, but i got to tell a story. Many of you know the story already. How many of you, did any of you, see, any of you see 42, the movie on the, Jackie Robinson's life? Great movie. Loved it. If you got a chance, get the DVD or down, you get it from Amazon or whatever. But Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. He was the first African-American to play Major League Baseball. And Branch Rickey, the general manager of the, of the Brooklyn Dodgers, um, hired Jackie and brought him up from the minors. And there was a deal that Branch Rickey made, and I can't hardly believe this is such an awful chapter in our past, but Branch Rickey had a deal with Jackie Robinson that said for two years, no matter what anybody does to you, you can't retaliate, you can't say anything, you just have to accept it. And so when Jackie Robinson came up, unfortunately, there was a whole lot of people that, and first of all, there were a lot of major league players that didn't want Jackie Robinson playing in the majors. And then on top of that, there were a lot of fans that were hostile toward Jackie in fact, before he, got, before he ever played for the Dodgers, when he was called up from the minors, a lot of the players on the Dodgers got up a petition that they did not want him playing on their team. And then, of course, there was Pee Wee Reese, who's another Hall of Famer. Pee Wee Reese was captain of the Dodgers. He's one of the legendary shortstops. And they brought the, they brought the petition to, to Pee Wee, and they said, hey, we want you to sign this petition, and we don't want this person on our team. Him and Pee Wee said, hey, man, I just got back from Korea. I'm through with fighting. I just won't play baseball. I'm not signing your petition. And I think largely because of Pee Wee's action, Jackie Robinson got on the team. But things were brutal for a while. Every time they would go into a stadium, he would be booed. You know, whether he was playing at home or he was playing on the road, he'd be booed no matter where he went. And pitchers would, you know, they'd try to brush him back off the plate by throwing tight pitches. And sometimes he'd get beamed, you know, and... And then if he was playing shortstop, or playing second base, rather, they, the runners would come by and spike him as they ran the bases, you know. And he, because of his deal, he couldn't say anything. Now, the story's pretty well universal. There's, a couple, there's one detail that never, I'm never quite sure about. I don't know if it happened in Cincinnati or if it happened in Brooklyn. Everything else is pretty much the same. Jackie was playing second base, and, and he, he had an error. Well, that happens. He was just, he was just, he just scored an error. And the crowd began to boo. Now you, you and I have been in stadiums before when crowds boo a player. I mean, there's like the boos crescendo for a moment, and then it just dies down because it's, it, you, the moment's passed. But this time, the, 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 the cries, the boos didn't die down. They just went on and on and on and on. They just went on without stopping. And Jackie just stood there at second base while all this abuse rained down on him. And it was very clear what the meaning was. It wasn't, we're mad at you because you're an athlete and you made a mistake. It was like, we hate you because you're black. We hate you because you're in our sport. And Jackie just stood there and took it. And as the booze rained down, there was something that changed history. Shortstop Pee Wee Reese walked over to second base from his shortstop position and just stood beside Jackie. 
one of the most popular players in Major League Baseball, stood there beside Jackie, and as the booze rained down, he just simply reached out and he slipped his arm around Jackie's shoulders, and it got deathly quiet. Jackie Robinson would later say that arm around my shoulder saved my career. In 1999, when Jackie died and they had his funeral at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Ms. Jackie Robinson's widow met Pee Wee Reese's widow, and Jackie Robinson's widow said to Pee Wee Reese's widow, your husband's arm around my husband's shoulders changed our life. I've thought about that many times. There's a statue even to commemorate that. You know what Pee Wee said? I'm here. I'm coming to where you are. And I care. You want to change somebody's life who's going through suffering? All you got to do is be there and care. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to judge them. Just be there and care. I'm seven minutes into overtime. Thank you so much. God bless. See you next weekend. Be safe out there.